My dad died. I miss my friends because of... I don't know how to tell my friends that. I want to help my friends. I don't know how. The pandemic has left me feeling very lonely. How can I best support students in my classroom? The morning meeting is meant to be a place to let you know that you are not alone. We can get through this together. So join us. Listen, learn, share your stories. This is the morning meeting. Today on the podcast, I'm really excited to have Michael Hebb. He's the partner at Round Glass and founder of EOL and DeathOverDinner.org. He's also the author of Let's Talk About Death Over Dinner. And before COVID, he could be found traveling the world speaking at TEDMED, the Obama Foundation Summit, South by Southwest, and the World Economic Forum. His writings have appeared in various publications, including USA Today, GQ, and Food and Wine. So thank you so much, Michael, for coming on the Morning Meeting Podcast. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. Um, You know, I've been struck throughout this pandemic with uh, so many stories of people dying alone and often without their families, and their families don't often know what they would want at the end of their lives. So I do want to talk to you about the importance of talking about death, especially uh, with young people. But first, I'm just so curious if you could talk a little bit about what got you into the work of talking about death and why over dinner? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, how long do you have, Mandy? (laughs) I guess we have an hour. Um, So... (laughs) We'll try to um, move beyond just the (laughs) Genesis story. Uh, Let's see. Well, I think that what's interesting about this work, and I'm sure you've found, is everyone has this powerful Genesis story. It isn't necessarily like being a veterinarian or deciding that you want to be president or, you know, a a fireman or firewoman. Um, It chooses us, um, and often there's... um, almost always there's a pretty significant death um, that someone goes through. And for me, um, it was the death of my father. Um, Though I did have a lot of other loss in my childhood. My best friend died tragically. Um, My cat got run over in front of me. Um, Mm. And then, yeah. And, um, and then my father was diagnosed with Alzheimer's when I was in second grade. And, then died when I was 13 and it was, um, it was a, it was was a terrible thing on top of a terrible thing. Mm Um, you know, I mean, but I often have to remind people when I'm talking gleefully about death and death awareness and death wellness, um, is that I'm not saying that death is, um, the death doesn't suck. Death right. is just terrible. And, you know, how do we make it more meaningful is kind of the work that a lot of us are doing. But nonetheless, this um, experience of having my father diagnosed with dementia, with a terminal diagnosis, and then having him die um, was really made so much worse by the fact that my family didn't have the tools and the resources, the skills um, the invitation to, from our society, um, the training, any of it Mm -hmm. to deal with it well. Um, and it destroyed our nuclear family in many ways, um, destroyed the the connections in the extended family. 
And there was a lot of fighting about whether he was actually sick or just being over medicated. Um, and, you know, it was really, really awful. And so that certainly, you know, years later, when the idea for Death Over Dinner started to come into focus, it was given fuel and clarity by the fact that I really wanted to create a situation where no one ever had to experience what I had to experience as a kid. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, and that couldn't be summed up by, um, by kind of simple framing and what happened in my family is death and dying and illness became a thing of shame, um, Mm -hmm. became shameful. And because we didn't know how to deal with it, it got, you know, it slipped into that ugly terrain. And, um, and I don't want anyone to have to experience that. Like it's enough to have to experience death, but to also be defending against and wallowing through shame um, and be shut down in those kind of ways. Mm-hmm. It actually makes it very hard to access the grief later on. Absolutely. Can you so. talk a little bit more about shame? I think shame is such an under undercommunicated feeling that so many of us don't talk about. Yeah, well, I mean, shame has... I think just one purpose, um, and that's to, um, in in one kind of healthy purpose, um, and that is to strongly teach someone that their behavior is endangering themselves or others, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we shame children, and we appropriately shame people who commit atrocities like rape or murder, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, And outside of that, those that Venn diagram, I, I don't think that there's any need for shame. So we like kind of borrow this very strong medicine um, and apply it to other situations and also just end up in feeling shameful about something when we don't discuss it, um, when we act like it's a kind of secret. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we feel kind of ashamed because we don't have the ability to talk about. And I think that my mom very much felt ashamed and out of her depth when it came to my father's illness and didn't know how to talk to these two, you know, relatively little kids and then teenagers and no one in the family knew how, and my friends didn't know how. And so it just all, you know, became this tremendous elephant mm-hmm. s- sitting on top of all of us that we, it ended up just, you know, driving us almost magnetically, like the reverse of a magnet away from each other. Mm. And that was pretty healthy, quite frankly. Okay. Okay. You know. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes it is. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's good to take space from toxicity. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And then what was it like for you having six years in the life of a, you know, a young person is a long time, but about six years later, I assume you left for college. And what was that experience like for you as somebody who had experienced the death of a parent? Well, I, I, it wasn't just as simple as six years later I left for college. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> um, it was that I was kicked out when ah. I was 15. Um, ah, okay. And, um, and then, you know, spent four months uh, living with friends and, and almost took a job in Hollywood, um, working for Roger Corman productions, um, which was like the smut king of Hollywood. Um, <laughs> there are some stories there, I bet. but, um, nonetheless, hopefully uh, none that you're ashamed of. <laughs> no, not at all. And nothing X-rated. Um, but, but 
but close that actually there's a story that includes Zach Morris stealing my girlfriend. No. But you know, <laughs> I don't know if we have any Saved by the Bell fans. Out there. Um, I'm sure. <laughs> but you know, to have the like the proto stud of of my childhood uh, yeah. swoop in and steal my 16 year old girlfriend and have her move to Hollywood with her. It was wow. pretty. That's pretty rich narrative. It is uh, for for Central Oregon, but um, nonetheless. We digress, yeah, and I'm sure we will. But I then moved back in with my mom, um, and then she begged, and uh, mom, if you're listening, I'm sorry, the truth hurts. But I spent about a year with her and then moved to Maine to live with my sister to complete a postgraduate year of high school because I graduated as a junior. And then, so by the time I was actually left for Reed College, I left from Maine in a 1973 VW bus that I was driving cross-country to read so very much <laughs> living out some other narrative yeah um, so the thing is i didn't while the loss of my father was part of my kind of surface narrative i had had such a difficult time mm. accessing the grief and i think a lot of um young boys and a lot of men do more so than women and i'm certainly sure. than a lot of women do as well um, but we act like grief is just this button you push or this overwhelming thing that takes control of you and is bigger than you. And the reality is a lot of people's experiences, they don't even know where the island is. Yeah. Um, so it was much later. It was actually after it was when I had turned 20, 21 and out of the blue in a completely unrelated conversation. Actually, when I was in the middle of a breakup conversation, I got hit with my father's grief, like a semi-truck. And I'm like bawling. And, the, you know, <laughs> this, the poor woman, girl, the young woman that I'm with is like touched. Right. <laughs> it's really not about you. Yeah. And I'm like crying and being like, I know, I know this might seem, you know, and what a dream, right? right. That's what you want to break yes. up conversation with a young man to be. And it very rarely is. Yes. So like, are you going to shed a tear? You, you know, um, uh, you asshole. Um, and, and here I am completely losing it and like being like, sorry, it's not about you. <laughs> you don't get this. This is not for you. This is, you don't get right. to carry that. So we got back together. Cause I think she was like, wow, that's my guy. Oh, all right. Well, <laughs> ended up it having is... a baby and it didn't work out. Oh. Whatever. <laughs> we got a baby out of it. We got an, an amazing, you know, human being. Yeah. My daughter who's 19 now named August. But Very nice. Yeah. So, so where are we? Where are we? <laughs> um, well, I'm, I'm actually going, I'm going to go way back to um, okay, when your dad was first diagnosed. And I think about how important it is to have conversations when you're young. And so many people wait to have this conversation. And you said that you, you know, your family didn't have these conversations. What age do you think is the right age to start talking about death? Well, it depends on if it's a presence in one's life. Okay. So unless a child is asking curiosity questions about mm -hmm. death and dying, I don't think that there's no responsibility we have to educate them. Right. Um I do think that the culture itself has a responsibility to have death be more present, um, have death be a community act. Um, and so, but on the individual and the parent, I don't think that we need to drag 
children to funeral homes or have them have some sort of confrontation with death if it's not present sure. in their life. Now, if it's present, then you have to turn towards it um, mm-hmm. because the if you're not, you're suppressing it or repressing it, and you're actually creating um, a dynamic and a pattern that we know now is what leads to a lot of disease. Yeah. Um, so if it shows up, you have to, you know, you have to bow to it in some way. And there's a lot of different ways to do that. And it really depends on the child and the circumstance, but mm-hmm. we have to acknowledge it because the kid, you know, kids are smart. Yeah. Um, they know what's, they know what's up and, and, you know, and then they also get scared and your job is to make sure that your child um, feels safe and that they can trust you. And so they actually look, they really do watch their parents as they're going through difficult times, you know. And then if they're a teenager and they're watching their parent go through a difficult time and they don't like what they see, they get really scared because they're like, I don't want to be that. Right. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. and, and, and this is why I think we've, you know, waged such a war on adolescents yeah. is because they reflect us back to ourselves. But <laughs> I think that's another podcast. Absolutely. Um <laughs> I do think, you know, I think you're right. We don't need to shove it into kids' faces that, you know, you're going to die one day um, or that, you know, your parents are going to die. I was just going to say that, though. But the reality is death is, you know, kids are exposed to death and dying from a very, I mean, Disney shows and, you know, pets. And so there's plenty of opportunities. And I think that's probably what you meant when you said society has this. There's so many opportunities that we need to normalize the fact that, you know, life is about living and dying and, and that yeah. happens all the time. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, my daughter was like very clearly at age eight, I'm boycotted Disney, which is a pretty remarkable thing. Another daughter, um, Violet, mm-hmm. um, she was like, no, thanks. Um, and I asked her one day, I was like, well, at first I thought it was, you know, the princess uh, issue, mm-hmm. right? The the way that women are portrayed. I was thinking, yeah, you know, this is like she's she's grown up hearing about Gloria Steinem and feminism is just mm-hmm. baked into our family, and and she's got that issue. And I was like, no, um, she's like every main character is an orphan. Yeah, um, one of their ch- parents has died, and she's like, I'm not okay with that. That's too sad for me. Mm. <laughs> okay okay you know yep. you got it you mm-hmm. don't have to watch bambi no you um don't. so anyway yeah um, so that's the, that is the societal um and i don't know if disney necessarily or has historically done the best job of um bringing us into a confrontation with death but it does give us an opportunity to say well let's talk about your feelings um, the problem is you know, if parents are uncomfortable with a conversation about death yep. um, and they don't have their own literacy around it, then mm-hmm. they're much less likely to um, go into that conversation. Yeah. So, so I assume that um, dinner must mean something to you and create some kind of safety to have these kinds of conversations. Well, it, it it's kind of because it was lacking. Um, in the same way it's, I'm, I am trying to repair a world that was pretty broken for me, you know, and that's, people have a decision if they grow up in a broken world, are they going to try to repair it for themselves or others? Or are they going to 
pay that pain forward or what are they going to do? What are we going to do with it? Yeah. And, um, you know, family dinner just stopped happening for my family when my father got sick and, um, dinner was a bowl of cereal and, uh, Nintendo, um, which was great. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say my kids would love that occasionally. Yeah. Yeah. For all the 12 year olds out there listening in, um, I'm with you, man. Mm -hmm. Um, and, but um, it stopped, and it didn't. I didn't have family dinners until I moved in with my sister, who was my half sister, and she was much older. And they got together every night. She cooked a meal from scratch after going to the farmers market, very much, you know, in the style of and inspired by Alice Waters. And she was in Berkeley during the the sixties and seventies, and the back to Earther, and um, and so that's. And we sat down and had this incredible meal and opened a bottle of wine and they talked about their experiences and there was this incredible connection and healing that happened at the table. And so I got to see um, the lack thereof, um, the isolation, the loneliness, the status quo for so many people, and then the other status quo for so many people, Mm -hmm. um, this other model. And so I think the imprint that that made on me um, was indelible um, and was like, okay, this is a this is a really remarkable thing and and we had those kind of dinners to some extent in my early childhood as well mm-hmm. and and so when i you know i studied architecture and i ultimately just took that lineage and that work of architecture and and applied it to the dinner table and said i think the table's the first architecture and it actually doesn't require other architecture because it does what architecture is meant to do create powerful human experience and you only need four legs or three legs and a top and a table or some some you know mm-hmm. pillows or something to sit on in an implied table by eating on the ground and so it was like we don't even need architecture right. <laughs> it's all right here and we're drawn towards it way more powerfully than we are towards buildings mm-hmm. the t- the table is that real magnet and um, it always has been. And it's the first internet. And it's also where we made the evolutionary leap from human to ape. There are a lot of things. It's where we got the ideas for democracy and justice and our justice system. Um, It's where oxygen was essentially discovered and codified as an idea between Joseph Priestley and Benjamin Franklin at the lunar men dinner. So I was like, this thing called family dinner or just the the dinner table or the lunch table has powerfully shaped us since we became human. And so I got pretty interested in it. Wow. I I mean, there's a lot there, a lot of footnotes. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure. I was just thinking about, like, it's true. I mean, I'm thinking about, you know, different conversations that I've had over different tables and different meals. And, you know, I'm very focused on uh, young adults and college. And I have to assume that the atmosphere of that table matters. And I'm wondering about, you know, how do you make Mm -hmm. a safe table for, uh, you know, people your daughter's age? My son is 19 as well. So like that age to sit down and start talking about death. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple of things there. There's safe table in general which has a some slightly different 
um, design uh, needs or programmatic needs, and then death, which then also has a few. So there's a little bit of overlap there. But tables are inherently democratized in their design, right? Um, mm-hmm. Even though we've tried, it's so funny, we're like, this is the head of the table. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, is it? Or is it the tail? I mean, they look the same. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, or a round table. Or, you know, and we've like, mm-hmm. father always sits here, which is just like, a ridic- it's become a ridiculous idea because it's a ridiculous idea. Yeah. Um, we sit at the table because we want to be in a democratized space because we want hierarchies to be um, broken, because we want a little bit of a riotous phenomenon, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we want it to be convivial. We want it to, the cup to run over us a little bit. We want people to laugh a little too hard. So all of those things, we just, it's not so much what creates a safe table. It is that the table is inherently safe. Are we getting in the way of it? And Sometimes we get in the way of it by being too perfectionistic, being too much of a Martha Stewart, making sure that everything is just right or that one person is producing the whole experience, right? Mm-hmm. Um, people should cook together. And and if they can't cook together, set the table together. Get people engaged and activated in creating the environment. You know, I mean, your kids hate the idea when you're like, you have to set the table or it's your chore, etc. But it's a very smart thing. even if they don't like it they're they're engaged in it and they have a sense of responsibility and have a sense of order and their place and their role and it's really a great thing to do i do it with you know even when i've had you know a nobel prize winners and heads of state it's like yeah you know chop this basil (laughs) (laughs) um and and that is important if you have uh if you happen to be next to the field where your food is coming from, by all means, make your guests go out and harvest food. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the, if you want to create an environment where transformation can happen at the table, the perfect example is to really soften people up by getting them out into the field, getting them to pick the vegetables, wash the vegetables, be involved in the cooking process, setting the table, cooking together, sitting down together, doing the dishes together. There's, there's nothing that can't be accomplished, I believe, if all of those things are present. And I've seen it happen. I've seen the the world stage shift, quite literally, and policy shift um, through experiences when there's that kind of transformation at the dinner table. But it it's as simple and as prosaic as our everyday life and our everyday table, because we want to have healthy dynamics or create new healthy dynamics or change unhealthy ones. And it, and it is, it takes safety and it takes, you know, mom or dad or whoever's cooking, not being stressed out because they're, they've never cooked the thing before. Um, or not uptight because so-and-so plays with their forks and knife or. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So, um, so that safety at the table, um, you know, get the lighting right, get some ambient music. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> table shouldn't be overlit. It's not, it's more like a dance floor, less like a gym. Right. Um, and um, and then death. Um, the thing about death is it's an opt-in conversation, or it's a um, or it's a little bit more of a courtship. So 
those are the kind of two ways that I think about the conversation about death. Hey, we're going to have, that's why death over dinner is so clear. Um, let's have dinner and talk about death. Are you in? No. Cool. Are you in? Yes. (laughs) Awesome. You're in. Great. You never like surprise people, you know, it's like pizza night. Surprise. Death dinner. Right. All of a sudden you've got a whole bunch of gluten-free people who can't stay. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Or people are, my favorite is, Thanksgiving is coming up. I'm going to have the conversation. I was like, you have a, you're, that is a terrible idea. That is the worst idea. Um, do not conflate National Healthcare Decision Day and Thanksgiving. Right. Um, like, it's just bad. I mean, if you have a family that can deal with you springing a death conversation on them at Thanksgiving, then you don't need to go see your therapist. Right. That's not like just go for a hike if you're having a hard time. You you've got if your family's that together and cool. You you know all your problems are in your head, right? Um, but so don't do that. Um, let people opt in, and if they want to come and have a conversation over dinner or tea or cocktails that you've invited somebody into, um, or take a walk and talk about death. Then there's plenty of tools on Death Over Dinner or Death Cafe or, you know, the Conversation Project to have those kind of conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if they don't want to do that or you don't feel comfortable asking that, a lot of times people have very directional conversations and say, my mom won't talk to me. My husband or my wife won't have the conversation. That's when I get suspicious. Okay. <laughs> One, it's not about the person that needs to shift. It's not the spouse, the mom, et cetera. I'm just like, meh, mm-hmm. how, are you, how are you trying to have this conversation? Most times I find that it's been reduced a little bit transactional. I need this from you. We mm-hmm. need to talk about this. Um, there's a problem if we don't do it. and Or very just directional. I've done this. You need to do it, right? And and so you're in the right, they're in the wrong. And that's that just doesn't work with most things. Um, but it definitely doesn't work with death. And so that's why it's more like a courtship. You have to kind of, when you, when you're courting somebody, you think about their experience, you think about what they like, what makes them feel safe and comfortable. Um, you build on that, right? So if they like Aretha Franklin, wow. You know, what a devastating loss to the world, mm-hmm. you know, and how devastating to her family that she didn't have a will. Yeah. What chaos ensued. The grief that went uh, for, for continues, I'm sure, because they didn't yeah. know how to honor this incredible human in their life. Mm-hmm. Right. And, yeah. you know, and then walk away from it. <laughs> you, you planted a seed um, in courtship. You're not like, hey, my name's Joe. Um, we should kiss, probably have sex and get married. Um, and nice to meet you first date. <laughs> right. <laughs> Take your time. Right. <laughs> um, cause what we want to get to is very nuanced conversations with our loved ones. We don't want to just get them to sign the paper, do the will. Yeah. That shit absolutely matters. And it absolutely doesn't matter, which is, you know, there's a lot of pushback on advanced directives and pulse right now because yeah. there's data around the fact that how often they're actually honored in a medical setting or how, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and that, that, that isn't to say don't do them. It's like do them for sure. But with the a most, conversation, 
with a conversation because you don't if you don't have an advocate if you don't have a health proxy that actually knows what you want you're not going to get it in yep. death in life it, after you're gone it's just not going to happen yeah so you know some thoughts and things yeah that's some things yeah <laughs> uh, um, um you know i guess i i in my family we talk about death all the time that's my world so um yeah. you know we're sort of comfortable but when i talk to other people with you know children the same age as my own people are always very surprised and my kids will talk to me about it so they'll bring up yeah. things um which i have to assume is even harder than when a parent says to a kid like we have to talk about the fact that i could die one day but when a, when you know a 1920 young adult has to say to their parents i want to talk to you about you know your potential uh death or you know even their own uh, that's got to be really hard to bring up if there's not, you know, a safe family space. Yeah. And I mean, it's not like a lot of 19 and 20 year olds have a lot of nonviolent communication skills, you know, like, mm -hmm. or they probably haven't been through those kind of trainings, et cetera. Um, yeah. and most of us haven't. And the thing is, you know, another tool that somebody can use and definitely this is available to a 19, 20 year old or a 25 year old or a 50 year old or an 80 year old mm -hmm. is you lead with your own experience, your own vulnerability and your own fear. Like, Hey mom and dad, I'm really scared. Right. Yeah. I'm scared that I won't know how to advocate for you. If you know, you were on a ventilator, if you were intubated, if you couldn't speak for yourself, I'm, I'm, I'm scared that I don't know what you want to have happen with your stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I don't want to be in an, I don't want to be fighting with other family members. I'm scared that I, that I don't know what kind of music you'd want to, or at your funeral. I don't even know what, what you'd want to have for your body and you know, what happens to your body. And that terrifies me. I don't know. I like, I won't know how to grieve you if I'm worried about if I'm doing it right. 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 Now that simple reframe, I'm afraid I'm scared my vulnerability, um, that's going to solve 75% of those conversations, at least, that yep. people say that they're at, at a roadblock in. Mm -hmm. um, because but parents are like, wait, you're afraid? I don't want my child to be afraid. Let me help you, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, I mean, but then, you know, there's some narcissists. <laughs> <laughs> universe there uh -huh. there's all kinds of different psychologies that you're dealing with that do sometimes just deeply complicate this mm -hmm. um and so compassion i'm not saying that my glib advice solves all problems in these conversations um but a lot of them yeah it's a worth a try for sure yeah 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 exactly fail better as samuel beckett says absolutely absolutely <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Inner Harbor, providing grief support to students and those that support them. Find us at www.inner-harbor.org. So I also am so excited about your um, EOL.community. Yay! 
Do you want to try? The website's beautiful, by the way. I really thought it was just, it's so friendly and welcoming. Can you talk a little bit about that? That objective? I would love to. I mean, we, (laughs) so we launched death over dinner seven years ago, um, almost to the day. Um, and there've been over a million people who've come and had these conversations around the globe, which feels extraordinary organizing their own dinners, which everybody's welcome to do. And it's free and all of the stuff you need to host a dinner is on death over dinner. But we created a kind of bigger problem when we were trying to solve the one problem, the, okay. the one problem of getting people to talk about death. We were patting ourselves on our, on the backs and we're doing a pretty good job. And then we're like, well, now they're talking about it. They're going to make a plan and that's great. And then I was like, whoa, shit. <laughs> right. <laughs> How do you make a plan? Where can they make a plan? And mm-hmm. for me, a checklist is not a plan. There's some great checklist resources out there. But for me, like a plan, an itinerary, let's say even, includes providers, includes expert opinions and some research, right? Like if you were, if we were going to plan a trip to Italy, okay. we were going to, we'd go like, okay, well, we're going to get the airfare early, save a lot of money. Now we'll figure out, let's do some research. Let's see what some experts about Sicily say, where we have to go, you know, what we have to experience, what restaurants. And then you get closer and you make a few hotel reservations. You make sure you have the car, all of these things, right? Like very easy, a thing to do and very lovely to do. And then you have this incredible trip to Italy. Now, if you, if you don't do that planning, it's going to cost you three to 10 times as much. If we were like, Hey, let's go to Italy tomorrow, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, let's go. We have to go this afternoon. Actually, we got to go to the airport, and we've got to go. And that's how most people deal with death, right? And it's ten times as expensive, um, and you don't get the rush. It's not like exciting to do a last-minute trip to Italy when Italy's actually death. So that's what we created. It was like, wait a second, let's create a site where people can create a plan an itinerary for a trip that at some point they're going to take. It doesn't matter when. And they can get some of the big early stuff out of the way, like the airfare, like creating a will or an advanced care directive. Then they can start to think about what what they want to have to their body. Um, And then they can think about, all right, well, eventually I'm going to be in assisted care or memory care, or I want to make sure I have the right insurance, or I want to make sure that I have my finances in order. So I need a financial advisor that really understands these things Mm -hmm. Um, all the way up to, oh, great. Well, now we actually need hospice. Now we do need to arrange a funeral and a green burial if we're interested in that. What is a green burial? You know, all of these questions. I want my mom. My mom wants to be she's in Washington state and she wants to be composted at recompose. Amazing. That's legal. Yeah. And, you know, they're on the platform. now I've lost somebody and I'm grieving and I need a grief therapist. Like, okay, well that's there too. And so we created this one place where all of those things are, where you can create an itinerary and a plan for free. You can find providers for free. You can do a lot of research for free. You can meet the top experts in the field. A grand majority of them are on the platform already as community members. And it's been extraordinary to watch people say like, 73-year-old woman from Georgia says, I'm healthy and happy now. And this, she's writing this just on our general, you know, it's a social network too, so you can ask questions to the community. And, you know, she's found our site. 
within one hour of launch, um, she's written on our board, created a profile, written on our board. All of this, again, free, free, free. And she's written on her board, I'm 73, I'm happy and healthy. Now, at some point, when I do die, I want to be buried um, on my daughter's land in this county, in Texas. And I don't know if it's even legal. And I'm very interested in green burial. And I don't know anything about that. Full stop. Four minutes later, the president of the National Home Funeral Alliance responds. Um, You know. Hey, woman from Georgia. I think her name is Nancy. Hey, Nancy. Her name is Nancy. Here's exactly what you need to know for that county. Here's the link to everything you need to know for. Here's here's what you need to know from a green barrel perspective as far as resources. And here's my phone number. If you want to just call me right now, imagine Nancy posting on Facebook, right? Or Twitter, like just not going to happen. Um, and I'm watching this. This is the hour after we've launched, and I'm crying, you know, because it's it's, um, it's happening already. And yeah. it was just just the thing of such beauty and elegance and simplicity. And then another woman responds, "Hey, I actually have 40 acres outside of Austin that I want to turn into a conservation burial site." Even the president of the Green Burial Council getting in touch with them and saying, "This is exactly how you do that, right?" Wow. So, you know, I was telling this story to Violet, um, because Violet came in, my 11-year-old, and she was like, how's the launch, Dad? (laughs) Are you viral yet? (laughs) Yeah, she's like, geez, shucks, Dad, talk to me about your death site. And um, different kind of leave it to beaver. And and I'm like, I start telling her the story, and she starts, like, tearing up, and she's like, Dad, it's working she she's like i get it this is this is why you built the site i was like yeah. oh my god my 11 wow. um so it's happening and you have all of the chaplain organizations on there it's about to be flush with chaplains you have the national end of life doula association anelda mm-hmm. you have national hospice and palliative care organization you've got and grief therapists like Megan Devine and Claire Bidwell-Smith and tons of others that you've never heard of. Um, there's courses and BJ Miller's on there. I mean, it's just like, wow, it's all wow. happening at the fair. So right. We're That's feeling fabulous. pretty good. You should. It's a, I can't even, I was going to say it's a huge accomplishment. I can't even imagine what kind of a feat it was to get all of that and and get it to look so beautiful and welcoming at the same time. So congratulations to you. Well, it was a beautiful process, actually. Um, mm-hmm. I waited. I knew that we needed to build this seven years ago, and I waited until the right person came out of the ether, and that was this extraordinarily successful Indian billionaire named Sunny Singh, who said, I'm going to spend the rest of my life and money making people well before they get sick and give all my money away. And this, how can, how can I help you build your dreams? Wow. <laughs> I said, well, great. Well, let's build it as a business so it's not based upon your philanthropy forever. Um, but let's do this as a partnership with this company, Round Glass. And so I joined. And, it, you know, I think it's very important to, if you're going to build something this big and comprehensive, it really needs to be a slow money investment at the very least um, mm-hmm. and, and not a venture-backed, you know, venture capital and Silicon Valley and banks. They want something different from these type of platforms than I was willing to give. Um, And so it's been, it has been a tremendous amount of work, but it's actually been joyful all the way through. So 
Good for you. Yeah, it feels really good. We have an amazing team. Fabulous. Um, I always like to ask everybody, I used to ask people, so what are you doing to take care of yourself? And then I realized that everybody's not taking care of themselves. So now I ask, are you taking care of yourself? And if so, um, how do you do that? Yeah, I am taking care of myself. I um, I just did a ten day cleanse, mm. which was and with daily like a couple Epsom salt baths and light exercise, and that really that's been a full reset for my body. And so that I'm doing to take care of myself, spending you know quality time with my daughter. Um, mm-hmm. And I would say the most important thing that I'm doing to take care of myself is I do work that nourishes me. Good for you. Sometimes I think people uh, find work to be not nourishing. So it's very nice when such a big part of your life is. Yeah, it totally is. And I don't overwork. I don't believe in it. Um, I think that we have to spend a lot of time being to be effective at doing. I like that. And... um, you know, I like this idea of a call for a four-hour work week. My only question in it is how I think you meant four-day work week, or, right? Yeah, four-day, not four-hour. I'm good with the four hours, too, but yeah. I think. <laughs> yeah, my buddy Tim, that's his idea. <laughs> um, but the, um, no, the four-day, and but but I, what I think that we need to do before we even consider any kind of changes is, like, what are we doing with the time when we're not working? Right. Yeah. Let's look at that because when you actually get still and you have practices that allow you to become more mindful and more still and just more present and it doesn't have to look like it come from came from, you know, eastern spirituality, there's a lot of different ways to get present. And once we're doing that, when we go back to doing, we're so much more effective and we can really separate the wheat from the chaff and decide what needs to get done. You know, I think COVID's done a lot of that. You know, people are like, yeah. now we know what meetings could actually be emails. And it's like, yes. Yep. <laughs> mm-hmm. Pretty much all of them, almost. Yep. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, that's been a, certainly a silver lining. Yeah, the great pause. For sure. So how can people uh, connect with you if they have questions or want to reach out to you yeah well we're on all of the fun platforms like twitter and facebook and and instagram um essentially some version of eol.community or eol.round.class um on those different platforms but um, the primary way is just come over to eol.community click join and it takes you two seconds to create a profile and then you're in the community and you can just talk to me or any of the lovely people that I mentioned before, they're in there and their products and their services and their content is in there as well. Yeah. And more and more will be. So mostly people can find me there. It happens to be where I, I hang out. Well, thank you for sharing and being so gracious with your time. And I really appreciate you. Of course. I appreciate you for doing. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, Absolutely. Seeing you over at EOL and everybody else that comes in. Perfect. We will see you there. Thanks so much. Thank you to Michael Hebb for this interview and to Stephen Bluestein for audio production. Join us next week. We're going to be having a conversation with Jeff Hobb. 
He's the New York Times bestselling author of The Short and Tragic Life of Robert Peace. We talk about his new book, Show Them You're Good. It's about high school senior boys as they prepare to go to college and the grief and loss that they experience as they go through that. So that's all for today. Good morning to all of you.